Sometimes you get what you pay for. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second with a short rant about what we're paying for. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you can see it, you can be it. But what if you never see it? Then what? I want my daughters and all young women to see a field of role models have gone before them and inspire them to what's possible. So I began the Fearless Portraits Project, an art series and podcast profiling notable women of today and recent history. Listen to the Fearless Portraits wherever you get podcasts. More at danlandau.net. There used to be beavers all over northern Canada. And then in Europe, a beaver coat became a really high-status item. And so people started paying, sometimes a lot, for beaver pelts. You can guess what happened next. We killed a lot of beavers. In fact, just about any time our culture decides that something is valuable, that people are willing to pay for it, people, industrious people, figure out a way to get more of it so they can sell it to the people who want it. Sometimes we get what we pay for. I think that's pretty clear, and we also are well aware of the side effects. If we decide that we want something a lot, like, I don't know, the redfish that used to swim near Louisiana, well then, suddenly, there aren't very many redfish left. But I don't want to talk about fish or beavers. I want to talk about attention. Because culture, modern culture, is driven by attention And we've been very clear about labeling it. We decide to pay attention. We give people our attention in exchange for information or entertainment or connection or status. That there is a lot of attention being paid these days. The value of attention keeps going up. The reason it keeps going up is because we're not making any more of it every day. Everyone gets their attention recharged, and when you use it all up, the day is over. But as institutions, organizations, companies, and individuals figure out more and better ways to profit from attention, they are racing to get more of it. Now, not everyone wants attention. Not everyone is seeking to monetize attention. But when someone decides that attention is what they want, it's extraordinary to see the lengths that they will go to to get and keep that attention. I want you to write it down. Garcinia Cambogia. Because it may be the simple solution you've been looking for to bust your body fat for good. Now I've got the number one miracle in a bottle to burn your fat. Lightning in a bottle. It's a miracle flower to fight fat. People who worked with him in medical school describe Mehmet Oz as being a gifted, skilled, compassionate doctor. And then along the way, Oprah put him on TV and he got hooked on attention. And the next thing you know, he's proposing to people that their lives will be better if they eat green coffee beans. And he and the producers of his show decided not to stress the fact that their viewers should exercise more to become more healthy because they would lose attention if they did. That what we've built is a culture that is driven by people who are on a quest for attention and driven by people who are paying 
attention. But something significant shifted about 15 or 20 years ago. To understand the significance of the shift, consider the tragic case of Kitty Genovese. Kitty, you've heard of her, famous, because she was murdered by a psychopath named Winston Mosley in 1964 in Queens, New York. It was senseless if murders ever have any sense, but this was a particularly senseless murder in which a stranger got up at two o'clock in the morning and decided to go kill somebody. Well, Kitty was the unfortunate victim, and no one would have heard of the case except that a police chief having lunch with the editor-in-chief of the New York Times mentioned some specifics about the case. The specifics went to a reporter named Martin Gansberg, and the reporter filed a story that said, and both facts in quotation marks are in the original story, 37 or 38 people witnessed the murder, watched it happening, and chose not to do anything. 37 or 38 people in an apartment building watching someone get murdered and doing nothing. It was such a sensation that it appeared in every single introductory psychology textbook in the United States and Britain years later. It was such a sensation that the 911 service for calling in an emergency was invented in response. It was such a sensation that people wrung their hands and wondered what was wrong with humanity. It was also completely made up. It was completely made up that there were witnesses to the entire thing. There weren't. Harlan Ellison, the great science fiction writer who should have known better, apparently made up an entire article about the thing, quoting one person on the third floor as saying that he turned up the radio in his apartment so he wouldn't hear the screams. But the whole thing was made up. And when a reporter from WNBC who was looking into the claims in the story said to Martin, why did you write it like that? He said, it would have ruined the story. And the reason we talk about this bizarre story in which our culture was changed because one article made up to please the editor-in-chief of the New York Times is that in 1964, there was an expectation. And the expectation was that editors would edit. That yes, publishers would publish, but that editors would edit. And that the people who had the few media outlets that were available to all of us were supposed to use good taste, good judgment, and restraint. We don't feel that way anymore. We don't feel that way anymore because the people who run Facebook and Twitter and other sites long ago said, we're not going to take any stand. We don't really want to have standards. We don't have any editors. That what we ought to do is create media that simply connects the people who are looking to pay attention with the people who want attention paid. And so what we end up with is an ongoing narrative, 24 hours a day, that is about division and anger. That these are the two ways to get attention. That if you can show up with sensational news, with surprising stories, with things that make people feel afraid, insecure, disconnected, that there's a panic right around the corner, you will get more attention. People pay attention to you 
when you whine or bully or work the refs or challenge whatever's going on around you. That is the way to make the algorithms on Facebook and Twitter and other places put more attention right there where you need it. And so we've got people who are making a living, a very good living, intentionally distressing the people who are reading what they have to say with falsehoods, with division, with bullying, with angry notes that aren't based in truth. And worse than that, they lead to their own side effects. Because if enough people in the culture read something and then believe something, it starts to become true at some level. The same way that the 37 or 38 witnesses that didn't do anything changed the way every psychologist was taught, changed the way we came to think about cities and community, even though it wasn't true, if enough of this division and anger gets repeated enough times, some people change their minds. So this is a bit of a rant for two reasons. First, we should realize that every time each of us pays attention, we are making a choice. We're making a choice not just about which media to support and which media personalities to support. We're making a choice about what we will come to believe and how we will see the world. And that each one of us has the choice. You have the choice to eat nothing but french fries and hamburgers four times a day, or to seek out food that gives you sustenance, that nurtures you, that doesn't leave quite as much of a scar on the planet. Well, the same thing is true with what we choose to pay attention to. But far bigger than that, with far more leverage, is this. There's only a handful of people who could change the algorithm if they wanted to. A handful of people who say they don't have an opinion on this, but through their actions have demonstrated they do have an opinion about this. There is no such thing as a neutral algorithm. Google doesn't give you the truth when you do a search. Google responds with what the algorithm taught it to do. And so every algorithm, the one that decides what to surface, what to put in your newsfeed, what to recommend next, every algorithm has a point of view. And so Cheryl at Facebook or Mark or whoever's on duty at Twitter, what are you doing about the algorithm? Why is it that you have chosen to amplify certain ideas and not amplify other ones? Because amplification is a choice. The astonishing thing about the network effect is that the network effect creates natural monopolies. There isn't much of an alternative to Facebook or much of an alternative to Twitter because people want to be where everybody else is. And so if that's true, if Facebook has nothing to worry about, about turning down the temperature, if Facebook's profits are going to be just the same if they create a more civil discourse, a more resilient world, a more positive ratchet going forward so that people can see what they are capable of, so that people can find peace of mind and resilience. If Facebook could do that, why don't they? The status quo that's in front of us, the one that goes all the way back to William Randolph Hearst, you give me the pictures, I'll give you the war. The whole idea of yellow journalism and tabloids, it's been weaponized and multiplied, and now it infects and affects all of us. 
So here we are paying with our attention every day, but the product we are buying with that payment isn't one that's making things better. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes, but first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope you'll visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two tactical questions this week for a change. Here we go. Hi, Seth. This question is not based on a recent podcast, but I'm still going to ask it. So the question is, let's say that you've written a wonderful novel and you've published your wonderful novel on Amazon KDP. At the same time, you would like to submit the manuscript to actual publishers. Now, I know your feelings about actual publishers, but my question is, can you do both at the same time, or should one really withhold publication of a novel on Amazon KDP while you entertain the prospect of having it reviewed by actual publishers. If you could give me your take on this, I'd love to hear it. Thank you. Thank you for this, Paul. What you've undoubtedly discovered is that publishing a novel is not easy. Printing a novel is really easy. Posting a novel on any e-reader is really easy. But publishing, the idea of taking time and money to put a new idea in front of people who will pay you money for it, it's really hard. So let's think a little bit about the book publishing industry because it's such a transparent, clear, vivid example that people can embrace as they think about bringing their ideas to the world. They used to have a pretty simple model, which is not that many people had printing presses and not that many people had the money to run them. That bookstores had a limited amount of shelf space and publishers had the leverage to get a little bit of shelf space if they asked for it, if they demanded it. So what they would do is go out hunting for the best book they could bring to the world. Then they would invest money with their sales force, shipping books on a guaranteed sale basis, get some shelf space. And at that point, 
the book, with a little bit of publicity, but mostly the book, How to Sell Itself. And if you're lucky, you get To Kill a Mockingbird. But almost all the time, you're not lucky. They used to publish 50,000 books a year in the United States from mainstream publishers, and perhaps 250 of them became home runs. But the long tail and Amazon and the decline of the independent bookstore and the decline of Barnes & Noble all change this equation. They change it dramatically because the publishers thought their customer was the bookstore because if they got enough shelf space, they would be fine. But now shelf space doesn't matter. So what's going on here is this. There are more people than ever writing more books than ever, but publishers, publishers are no longer able to make a hit happen. What they can do instead is one of two things. They can invest heavily in something that they're sure is going to work because that person has followers, because that person can sell a bunch of books simply by being who they are, or they can spin a wheel as cheaply as they can to play the game. It used to be a mediocre launch, printed five or 10,000 copies of a book. Now, two or 300, because they just can't afford to print and shred all those books. So what does this mean for a novelist? Well, it begins with this. Publishers either buy hope or they buy proof. They usually buy hope. Proof is, oh, I wrote Fifty Shades of Grey. Look how many copies I sold all by myself on the Kindle. Look, I wrote The Martian. Look how many copies I sold all by myself on the Kindle. If you've got proof, you'll get a publisher. The chances of you getting proof are really, really small. The alternative is to sell hope. And hope means you got to tell them less. The more evidence there is, the easier it is to lose hope. That's why agents almost never send in the full novel from an established author when they're running some big-time auction. Because if the first four chapters don't get someone hyped up enough, hyped up enough to want to read the rest, sending them the rest doesn't do you any good anyway. In nonfiction, it's completely true that the books are sold to publishers before they are finished. So with that said, no, you can't do both at the same time. Because if you do both at the same time, you've given away exclusivity, you've established a data point, which is your book didn't sell that many copies. Can you sell hope? Well, it depends. If you're a supermodel, if you're a former vice president, if you're a TV star, and you whisper to the people in book publishing that you're going to write a novel, you might get their attention. They might imagine that you're the next Margaret Truman. But, and it's a huge but, the typical novelist almost never breaks through. J.K. Rowling got rejected more than 15 times in a row with Harry Potter. Is your book better than Harry Potter? Because it's unlikely that it is. All of which is a depressing but straightforward way to say to you, If you can get a big advance from a famous publisher, please take it, celebrate, dedicate your book to me. Thank you very much. But you probably won't. And since you probably won't, the alternative is to write for the smallest viable audience, to write something in a genre that's underserved, to show up in a remarkable way, to build what can become a network effect, drip by drip, reader by reader, book after book after book. You're going to need more than one. That's not fair. That's not right. Harper Lee only had to write one. 
but we're not Harper Lee. I'm not her anyway, and it's not 1964. So with all of those provisos, I hope you will write another novel. I hope you will keep writing novels. I hope you will write them for your readers. And if someday a book publisher shows up, congratulations, you earned it. Thanks for this. Thanks for your writing. Hey, Seth. This is Nathan in Jackson, Mississippi, once again. I've been revisiting a lot of your older podcast episodes. And after taking some notes and looking through the show notes of your first one, the grand opening, I had a question come up and you link to an article that shows and talks about the innovation adoption curve where, you know, you can see the innovators and the early adopters illustrated. And those are the people that you're supposed to target when you are first started starting out with a new business or a new product idea, that kind of thing. And I was curious, where do you find the innovators and the early adopters? I assume that this is going to vary depending on your industry, your niche, that kind of thing. But I was just wondering if you had any advice in general on where to go to find the innovators and the early adopters in your field. Thanks for all you do. Talk later. Bye. Thanks, Nathan. My answer is sort of surprising, but I think it's true. You don't go looking for the early adopters. They go looking for you. They tend to congregate in places where it's not that hard to guess they will be. If you've got a new science fiction movie, going to Comic-Con to talk about it is probably a good idea. If you have a new fashion line showing up during fashion week in whichever city, probably a good idea. If you want to start a new culinary trend, probably makes sense to open in certain neighborhoods of Los Angeles or New York. That early adopters, they're thirsty, they're hungry, they're looking for something. You don't have to hustle them. They're curious. They're saying every morning when they wake up, what's new? And if you can say back to them, I've got what's new, they will inspect it. And then, and this is the key part, they will tell the others because that's the reason that people are early adopters because they like telling the others. You are not here to solve their problem and have them go away quietly. That's the next cycle of people that you're going to be serving. No, this cycle of people are eager for you to give them something that will raise their status and their connection with others when they share it. Now, picking the group isn't that easy. When I launched Telerium, Trillium, the science fiction adventure game line that I did in 1984 with people like Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, I thought, oh, Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, I'll go to science fiction conventions and book fairs. That was a mistake. I wasted months because those people weren't there to have a computer game sold to them. They didn't even have a computer. When I realized who I needed to call on, which were the geeks and the nerds who didn't read books but wanted to have a science fiction experience on a computer, we did great. I think four or five of the titles that I launched went gold, the highest level of computer game sales in the first year, partly because people like Priscilla got us great shelf space at Leechmere and other electronic marketers. But it was mostly because the early adopters were just waiting. And that's the art of this, to find something that when they hear about it, they'll say, it's about time, not 
Prove it to me. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project. It's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it first. Check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.